Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 65, Hot Takes. Oh, they're going like hot takes. <laughs> Get your hot takes here, hot takes. Oh, all right, who's going first? My hot take is D&D modules, the official published 5e modules, do a poor job of teaching GMs how to create their own adventures and are generally difficult to run without serious work. Prove me oh. wrong. Oh, that's a, okay. That's a good hot take because mm-hmm. you, okay. I, I'm anticipating our hot takes over the course of this episode are going to be like lava, you know, just plasma takes, but then <laughs> with the qualifier at the end where it's like, yeah. <laughs> And I feel like yours was that. I know there's a there's a big faction of people who are like, you know, the Wizards of the Coast are morons and they just, they don't know what they're doing and they're just, they all, you know, everything 5e sucks. But what you said with the qualifiers of like new GMs and like running it uh, without modifications... Checkmate, Jake. Okay. I, I I would say with the exception of Tomb of Annihilation, I think I would agree with you entirely. Oh, I and I would say especially Tomb of Annihilation. Why would you put a hex crawl with a time limit? Why? You encourage exploration, but also you have to go fast to get there or else you'll die. That's Dude, I don't know. That, that's the only one that I've run where I was like, I. that's the only one I've run with the least amount of modifications. Obviously, oh, I'll take that. I modified the hell out of it, but that's the one I ran with the least amount. And I've only ran probably probably four, you know, since 5e started. Probably four of the <laughs> official adventures, like, start to finish. With, obviously with a ton of modifications. Yeah. And I think Tomb of Annihilation was the only one that I didn't modify more than 50% of it. Oh my god. Okay, David, sound off. I think... <laughs> I think a lot of the adventure modules that they put out, it's not that you don't have everything there you need to run a quality campaign. It's that the layout of the book is not helpful if you don't know what you're doing. You're saying like the physical I think the information and how it's laid out and how uh, a lot of supplementary information that really doesn't come up is just like... Um, like fit like interspersed with all of the quality information that you actually need to run the game they're they're kind of like stacked together when they should be separated so all of the all just basically the layout is just bad in my opinion no, for running so i think that's true i think that there's this um since wizards of the coast is selling a premium product these hardcover awesome full print uh with lots Maps. of beautiful art. Yeah, the art beautiful is art. Like they spend money. I think Magic that Adventures items. should be a 30-page, maybe like a 24-page booklet. And then you, like, you'd get a box, and it has a booklet that is just running the adventure, and it has all the fluff, if we can use the F word here, of the... Uh, <laughs> like world building, <laughs> Although, Yeah, the world background stuff. That, stuff. that way you can clearly separate like what you actually need to know, and then the extraneous stuff. Yeah, because the amount that you actually need to know... Versus, uh, like, referential material that you can just kind of brush up on later for world-building stuff is... It's it's just, like, mixed together poorly. So, in a I, sense, I, I agree mm-hmm. with the, the, the stipulation of it being new GMs. Mm-hmm. Because new GMs are 
But then again, they're going to have a hard time anyways with a lot of things. And I, I don't, and I, and I, I would agree that the Watsi products don't adequately prepare new GMs. As an advanced GM myself, if I make all myself advanced, they're still difficult to run. And this product is targeted at people. Like, more people have started playing D&D than ever. Um, and so why would you have products that are actually really uh, difficult to, to use? Like, there's a guy on the Dungeon Master's Guild, or James Guild, and all he does is he makes these really nice booklets, essentially, that summarize official published adventures and gives you sort of a step-by-step plan for running it. That's how I ran Tomb of Annihilation, was with a different product that I paid three, two or three bucks for. Okay. I have, I have an even hotter take. Wait, does Jake have any final thoughts? <laughs> yeah, let's hear, let's hear David's. Okay. Okay. My hot take is that the Watsi produced adventures are not designed in a way that they're meant to be run. They're designed in a way that's meant to be consumed by GMs who like to read other DMG manuals in their spare time. I've heard this hot take before all over the internet. Um, what, Jake? Yeah, I, I I think I would agree with both of you. And it's like when I'm when I'm buying these things, I'm not buying, you know, Storm King's Thunder to run a an exact copy of Storm King's Thunder. I'm I'm buying it for thirty bucks on Amazon, oftentimes twenty seven ninety nine or whatever. You know, Hello. in order to just get all of the lore, get all of the details, get all of the boss encounters, all of the dungeons um, to, to plug in and utilize later. Like, and, and, and I think a lot of, and, and to keep in mind, D&D 5e official books are cheap as hell. Like, what? what? Dude, False. 30 bucks for like something that has a ton of Magic items and dungeons and that that sort of thing. And, he, like, that is worth it for a Dungeon Master. That is the like, cost of, like, a lot of Steam games that you could oh, buy. Oh, I, I guess if I, we can compare it to a bunch of things. But I think for 30 bucks, because, I mean, I look back at other books, like 50 bucks for this huge Tome of Beasts or whatever. Like, I don't know. I'm down to, you know... They release, what, two books every year? Mm-hmm. And to pick and choose, if like, okay, I want to do the pirate one, or I want to do the the snow one, or I want to do the, the you know, uh, Feywild one. Like, 30 bucks for for all of that is, I don't know, I feel like it's... But it's at the same that. time, I would argue that more than half of the time that the adventure is bought, it just sits on the shelf and doesn't really do much or add a but lot see, to I, people's I, okay. I think you're the fair, exception to the rule. I think no, no, no. what I've I seen, feel like every dungeon master has a billion things on their shelf that they haven't run. Yeah. Like right. I don't think you're looking at like, oh, every dungeon master has like a neat pile of like things I've run and oh, I'm empty of things I haven't run. Like no, they have mm-hmm. <laughs> like they they need like a pile of inspiration, and I mean, I do you though? Do you need a pile a year, of inspiration? I mean, dude, once a year, I'm willing to pay thirty dollars for a book of three hundred pages of inspiration. All right, like, I have that a, is not. I have a value comparison question for you, Jake, and I, I say it's two kind of things. So if this uh, this box set idea of mine of splitting the adventure and the the fluff into two products. Uh-huh. And together they cost thirty dollars. 
And so if it was up to you and you can split that cost between either the adventure or the fluff, would you just leave it 50-50 or would you pay more for one than the other? I don't know. I feel like I'd want them both. I... So the value is there? Because I think that what you're saying, like, because it's all grist for the mill, right? Like, we, we just have resources. Yeah. Everything I've ever that, read and perfect, watched. Yeah. It, it is all grist for the mill. It, it is... Yeah, like, I even, you know, I've, I've ran through entire, you know, Waterdeep, uh, uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, and uh, the Dragon Heist. Like, I've ran those, like, through... One through twenty, like, and I loved it. But yeah, I, I would say I played like from the adventure, specifically like rules as written to the actual game. Like I probably used less than half of it. But for that price, like thirty bucks a year, like <laughs> that's, that's okay. So here's my other my other argument. Um, are you familiar with a game called Mothership by Tuesday Night Games? I have played a primitive version of that uh, over Skype. With have you? Friends. That's good. Have you ever seen one of the adventures in the books? No, I've only used the uh, the free PDF. Uh, just so, classes. Um, I, I have a few of them that I've purchased. I'll I'll see if I can send you one. Um, those products, I think they cost about $7 for PDF, probably twice that for the print, um, are, without being hyperbolic, um, a master class in information design, presentation, and usability. There's a term in the board game world uh, that is called time to table. And what that means is from the time you open the box to the time it hits on the table, how long does it take for you to uh, unpack everything, read the rules, and feel competent enough to run it. And I, I would think the time to table for Watsy Adventures is something like thirty hours. I mean, yeah, but it's it's you guys are totally discounting like solo DM fun. Well, okay, maybe so, but that's I would say that's not the point of an adventure, but that's maybe a different hot take. My point is, is that with the Mothership Adventures and probably some other products, the time to table they want it to be like the time it takes to skim the adventure, like fifteen or twenty minutes, like a board game. And I think that's the real value of an adventure module. Because if I have 30 hours, I'm just going to write an adventure. And it'll be mine. For sure. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that like there, there are groups of people who are like, how do I convert this 5e module? Oh my gosh, I'm getting scared. Like, uh, why didn't I download a free PDF? Like, I, I don't think there's people out there that are like struggling with a 5e module when they would have been better off with a normal module. Like, I, I disagree. I think there are people out there who buy a, really? huh. a $30 book and expect to be able to take it home and play it that day, and they're just like caught up reading every NPC's backstory in the first chapter of Tomb of Annihilation. They're like, how do I... And then they just start watching YouTube and reading forums, and they realize they can't play that night. I think if you sell a product that's an adventure, then you should be able to like play it pretty quickly after. And I think that if you're going to design a product to be solo DM fun, like you, that's what it should be. And it yeah, like a fluff be. book. Like uh, Morden Cannons yeah. was a big mixture of like awesome monsters and then like crazy world building fluff, which is super fun. But at least it kind of knew what it was and it wasn't an adventure. Yeah. It was a, a monster book. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like we're going to be a, against each other a lot on mm. this, on 5e in general, because it seems like what they're doing is working. And like, I guess you guys can 
uh, anticipate all of these DMs failing, but, like, they keep buying the freaking books. And, oh. I mean, these books are making the New York Times bestsellers list, and so it's like, maybe they're just, like, foolishly under the 5e spell where they're hypnotized by the... So the argument here, Jake, is you're saying that if it's selling well, it must be working, right? I would argue absolutely yes. Yeah. So like, then the same argument goes for any, like, crappy Chinese car that sells well. It must be okay because it sells well. Yeah. I, I would argue that's true, too. <laughs> like, like, right? Like, what do you mean? So I'm saying that sales volume is no indication of uh, quality. It just is an indication of popularity. Maybe, maybe, yeah. So sales volume plus reviews. Plus... Right, because they're super fun to read, though. That's the thing. Because I, another, I guess, hot take is that there's more people reading about D&D and consuming ancillary content, reading adventures, than there are running the game. And if you want a product that reads well, it's super fun and compelling, beautiful, layout, all of the things we said, you cannot beat a D&D 5e adventure book. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's I why guess... they sell well. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to think of what I'm asking of you guys. What what do you think what Five E should do? Do what I said. A, a box set with a fluff book and an adventure book, and it's like step one: like read this town that they're in, read the dungeon that they're going to go to, read the pirate the, attack. I I haven't looked at the red box. Does the red box do that, or is it bad about that? The starter set. Yeah. Um, the beginner box, particularly for Five E, is super good. I think that time to table for that is something like two or three hours. In my experience, um, but that's not the case for any of the adventures, and I and I own all the adventures. Um, but even like so, some of Annihilation oh, so, is so great. Sh- but should they sell like something like a uh, you know red beginner's box and like a yellow uh, different beginner's box and like a uh, a blue beginner? No, you know, they, like, would, they wouldn't a be bunch beginner's different... boxes. They would be like um, just this. All the books instead of being books would come as box sets. They used to do that with, like, 2nd and 3rd edition. I know there's a game called The Red Hand of Doom for the 2nd edition, and it came with all, like, these fold-out maps. It came with, like, little, you know, props and, uh, what are they called? Chick Chits? Whatever. Um, plus the adventure book uh, and all that stuff. And I think that having that as a $30, like, premium product with removable things plus a really tight adventure, um, I would love to see that come back. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be the, the 5e defender guy, but, I mean, whatever they're doing seems to be working. And I just, like, the perfect word you said was grist for the mill. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, just, I'm just looking for content, whether it's ancient, you know, second edition <laughs> PDFs to whatever, just to throw into the old content mill to grind up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, Jake, it's your turn for a hot take. What you got? Oh, okay, hot take. Um, hot take from okay, hot take number one. Railroading is not an automatically negative thing. Okay, can you explain that a little bit? So, okay, so railroading is always like I see this as like, uh, especially players will be like, oh my DM is railroading me, or like, oh my gosh, like, um, it's okay. The, the idea of railroading of there being rails inherently i don't think is is a negative thing especially with newer players um younger players players that aren't as familiar with uh role-playing games or you know role-playing even video games like they they need to have rails to insert themselves onto um 
And so this is something where a lot of people will be like, no, 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 you have to have this this open world game where anyone could do whatever they want. And I think there's a lot of tables, potential tables, where there's a group of people and the dungeon master looks around and goes, oh, okay, what do you guys do? And the players are like, uh, we... We, we talk like we, we you know <laughs> Star there's, this, like, there's this exactly there's this like lack of action um and you know if you have a really good group of players they're obviously going to work with that they're going to you know chew up the scenery they're going to to make things work but if you have a group of new players a railroad is great i mean if you look at it like like Roller coasters have rails, and people love them because there is this like set. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! That Plot is a that, that, you can't make that comparison. People Come on, love I, I, roller I, coasters I, have rails. I'm trying to make my. T- I'm, here's the thing. I'm trying to make my take hotter because I felt like you guys were agreeing with me too much. Annoyingly, yes. So no, I, do, I actually don't agree with Jake on this one. Okay, wait, I, wait, I, I, I want to hear. Finish so, the point. So you I think rails are good because they on-road younger or newer D&D players, and that should be the goal, to, like, start with the railroad and then expand it out. I hard disagree. Okay, David, you go okay, first. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. Tell me why. I, I, I think that you're, you say, like, you saying that you need rails in order to, like, get younger players on board is... I don't think that's necessarily true. I think what you need to have in a game is a default action. And I think that's that's a very different idea than rails. So in some games, it is getting gold as XP. So how do I get gold? How do I do this? And a lot of what happens where players are like, I don't know what to do here. It's because they don't have a default action to take. And I think that having a default action is more significant than having rails. Because rails can very quickly unimmerse you from the world more so than having a default action okay 100 percent agree with all that and i think a default action is exceptional and should yes. be something that like more games could, should implement up front yes but i think a large group of people don't want to be immersed into a game they want to understand what a fn rpg tabletop rpg is and mm-hmm. so they're looking for immersion. They're looking of like, wait, well, what's what's going on here? Did I pass go? Do I collect $200? Like, I think I, I'm speaking for like a broad section of humanity. I think if you're to introduce tabletop role-playing games to a large group of uninterested people, I think the rails help people to get on board. I think they only help people... If you have a, an experienced dungeon master who is good at storytelling, Thank in you, every other situation, they're bad because they unimmerse you from the world. Mm, okay, well, I'm, I'm in agreement, I think, with Jake. I'm going to clarify some terms here because I think that the internet has got a hold of this term railroading and they, they mix yeah. it up with some things. I think there is such a thing as so, sort of good and bad railroading, and I think that bad railroading is... Um, when a GM sort of aggressively does not let the players play the game in the yeah. way that they would ever want to. They can't affect the world. <clears throat> right. It's like, I, I killed the guy who's like, you know, the messenger who we caught, you know, assassinated the king. And he's like, oh, no, he slips away. 
like, <laughs> like, but I rolled a 20. He's like, oh, uh, sorry, he dodged it. Like, that's that's frustrating in such an extreme way that uh, that GM should just never run the game again. Uh, but I think that, like Jake's saying, I agree with, for new players, it's better because they have no idea what they're doing. Like, having bro- a beginning, middle, and end is not right. railroading. It's, it, you know, every video game has like an onboarding process where they're like you know that's great now try hitting me with your right hook now press the x button (laughs) and you're like okay oh that was good now try shooting me with your gun with the right trigger whatever uh, i don't know why it sounds like (laughs) now try pressing the b button um that's it now move your legs um (laughs) where was it Uh, yeah so people expect that kind of like hand-holding experience however i would say that um if we're thinking of I want to say Zelda, like like an old like Ocarina of Time, any of the 3D Zelda games, they have a generally open world, and they have problems that kind of gate you, and so you can't get to certain places. I think in D&D yes. terms, that's like, generally you decide what to do, and maybe you even decide the order you do it, but I think there's sections where it puts you on the track for just a small time. Whether that yes. is, like even in Zelda, you go into a room and it locks the door behind you, and it's like, oh, now you're fighting a boss! It's like, oh, like you took away my agency for like, one fight, but now I'm going to go... Because if everything was like, oh, like the boss is here, let's fight him, and you're like, um, I just used my grappling hook, and I just, like, climb up the ceiling, and I got a 20, and, like, screw you, GM. Like, it's very difficult to make scenarios when players can literally do anything. Um, but, yes, yeah. I agree with David, too, of the... Uh, I don't the, think the having like that locking room. I don't think that's a railroad. Though. I, I think it is because okay, okay. it puts then you on I, a certain path with a set outcome. Yeah, I, I think we're just disagreeing on the definition of railroad. Yeah. and like I think it it's good for a dungeon master, an experienced dungeon master who's on roading, uh, more like newer players, to have a beginning, middle, and end. To have like you said, will like the Ocarina of Time like gates. Where it's like you go through this and it's like, yeah, your agency is taken away momentarily, but it will be rewarded by this plot hook or this huge event. And and I think that is so... I think that scares away a lot of people because they hear, oh, railroading. And so they just say, hey, I'm going to have a completely open world game. And their players show up and go, okay, what's happening? And they go, okay, you're in a normal town do what you want and like i think there's more players who have had a game stall out because there's not enough happening than there have been players that Mm -hmm. have been pissed off at a railroad you might be right you might be right i've been in a few of those where it was like oh now you're on island and they're you know it's like playing um what's a text adventure game it's like i look at the mailbox (laughs) i talk to the farmer he's like nothing interesting here today nice weather we're having can I just get a plot hook, please? No, like, I agree that there is, like, a, a hard, like, 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 railroading can be bad. But I think at this point, more people are, are pissed off from a too open world game with an unexperienced dungeon master than are pissed off with a too much of a railroad with a good dungeon master. I think. Hmm. I agree. Oh, wow. I think that railroad has become a bad word, and it should. It has. Be. It's become like a weird, like fire sale word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that if used properly, then it's fine. But I guess this is the entire reason that channels like Matt Colville or Critical Role or even like our show have had any degree of success is because people want to know how to have like a compelling story, whether it's railroaded or open yeah. world. 
yeah, like screw the definitions, like what makes a good game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would I don't think Critical Role is railroaded. Right? Oh, so I think I think Matt does more railroading than people think. Like his characters will be like, okay, I guess we'll head in that direction, maybe, and like he'll be like, okay, so on your way, you experience this. Like he'll very much take the consciousness of his characters and like show them the most interesting things, and and he does that exceptionally well. Be I think mostly because like he's filmed, like mm. he he has to, like he's on a timer, like he has to. Um, and so I think Matt does it more than most DMs where he'll be like, okay, you guys go this way or, okay. Like once, you know, they have a conversation for like five minutes, it'll be like, okay, so you guys decide to head this way. Huh. And, and a lot of people would be like, oh my gosh, like Matt just invaded their agency, but like he's doing it in the name of drama and in the name of a freaking basically TV show that they're running. Mm-hmm. Um, where he has to, like, move the plot along and be like, okay, here's where the next set piece is. And I think he does that more than people realize. And and I don't think they view it as, like, a, oh, my gosh, Matt's railroading us. It's a, it just depends on the DM and, you know, the definition of railroading. But that's my hot take, is that, that, that railroading is isn't inherently evil. The hottest take here is probably that you accuse Matt Mercer of railroading players. Those critters are going to come for us now, Jake. Oh, no. I'm just seeing the critters. You're done for, boy. <laughs> we finally got him. Cancel him. Cancel him. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. <laughs> critters crawling up our downloads. <laughs> uh, David, you got a hot take? Uh, let me think. I think that uh, a lot of the D&D community has more fun in their solo time than the in actual play what what i don't think i agree you gotta explain that i, I think, think a lot I of people agree with that what i think a lot of people have more fun reading and like if they're a player theorizing about character builds or if they're a dm theory like, crafting theory, theory crafting, crafting like story points or like lore or interesting creatures to add in i think they have more fun doing that than they do when they're actually at the table because when they get to the table all of those expectations are never fulfilled and they never really truly get to experience the game as they imagined it so it's always going to fall short and i think that most people suffer from that you're saying that D is the ultimate fantasy game but not for the reasons we want (laughs) yes (laughs) no okay let me let me let me echo off that. I think that is a hundred percent true, and I think it's a really hard pill to swallow. And that is why I'm really scared to like say, okay, make your character, and then we're gonna start the game like months later, is because those players will be crafting in their head what their character is like and what they interact with, and blah, 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 blah. and they'll text you know the other players and be like, okay, here's our interactions, and then once they get to the table for the first session, they'll be like. I, what you're doing there, and it's like, shoot, that that's not what I, that's not what I imagined, <laughs> right? Like, like they'll they'll say what they have imagined their character saying for the past, you know, two months, and it'll come out wrong, and it, like all all of that, you know, months of exaggerating and theory crafting, and you know thinking up hypotheticals and dreaming up you know the fantasy of what their character is 
once you hit the table, all of that, you know, like you said, Will, is grist for the mill. It, like, has to be pumped into a real setting. And so, yeah, David, I think I, I think it's really sad where especially Dungeon Masters who, like, will prepare something for, you know, 40 hours, which is, like, a full work week <laughs> of, like, eight hours like a full one and that they'll get to the 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 table and like the characters will do something different or they'll you know something will go wrong and and they'll just be like that's not what i imagined and like and i I feel like that pain is like it runs through a lot of solo fun of D&D, and i think you have to be careful about it and that's why i'm pro play D&D every week don't get lost in theory crafting like just get lost in the actual game (laughs) And that is why, leading back to when we were talking about Watsy products before, I think they're designed with solo fun in mind because they know a lot of people aren't actually playing a lot of D&D. They're actually thinking about it more. So yep. if you design a product to fill people's time, like the majority of their D&D time as solo time, because I think for a lot of people, they spend a lot more time thinking about D&D. Probably like uh-huh. for every hour, I think that people play D&D. I, spend, I think that they spend four hours like thinking about it. I think for a lot of people, I don't think they play very much from what I've okay. read online and from uh, what I've talked to about other people. They just read about it a lot. And I think that mm. Watsy products are designed to be consumed in downtime and they're and to mm. fill up you, your... Because it feels kind of like you're playing it you're, so, you're imagining yeah. like, oh, well, in this situation, I would definitely like push the goblin off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you get to like have fun doing it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but the, at the same time, I think those products are almost exacerbating the issue of instead of designing a product where you only really get anything out of it if you're playing the game like then well, but then the issue is not the adventure design the adventure yeah. the issue is people's it's time. the culture around okay the okay game. i i i want to hear will's thoughts on this because i know will has gone from very solo fun like you know designing over designing things and, mm-hmm. and having that sort of thing it's to a very lean <laughs> Uh, adventure design so yeah what's that process been like um actually so the reason i switched from 5e to osr is because of exactly what you're saying i was spending probably 8 to 20 hours a week thinking about the game prepping writing had so many ideas and we'd hit the table we'd play for three or four hours like twice a month maybe if i was really lucky and i would be disappointed it would it would live up to it and my wife i'd be going to bed and she would say so how was the game and i would just go you know, and I decided to to swap that, and so now I don't. I really don't think about the game unless the players text me about it, and, I, and they have to. They, uh, they have a question that needs to be answered, and then I think about it. But even like throughout the week, I'm. I don't think about it the way I did. I just get excited for the day we play, because then it's like three or four hours of just like surprises, like fun, adulterated stuff experiences yeah the i call it the uh, the roi or the return on investment for me now is very high because mm-hmm. i invest very little and i get tons of enjoyment out of it compared to before it was totally in the red of me invest over investing time that i actually shouldn't have been investing to only get soot and ashes in return oh. Maybe that's, that's grim i mean it was fun it's dnd it's fun no it, it, for sure it was not up to my expectations no i think 5e lends itself to like the theory crafting and just over excitement mm-hmm. and over expectations of like what 
uh, an actual, you know, three-hour adventure group will actually do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to build on that, too, because 5e just has so many cool little, like, knobs to turn, character classes. There's so much custom Magic stuff online. Items and, yeah. um, one of my players, actually, it's one of my players uh, for a time, he has uh, some kind of online business where people ask him to design new classes for 5e to like some very specific uh, specification like there i want a spongebob squarepants character class and then he and his friends sit down and they make like a level one to ten class for 5e and they get paid you know like 20 bucks and um and and that just shows like people want i don't know there's this kind of self-expression to it highly customizable there's so many spells you can do like the the wacky builds you find online of like oh look I, here's the well, maximum hit points you can have of a level 20 character you know. and the main thing is it's speaking a language that a huge amount of people can understand mm -hmm. it's like oh i'm a battlemaster fighter mixed with a gloom stalker ranger and like <laughs> saying that sentence out loud is is insane but like there's <laughs> there's a group of people who play 5e who are like oh, like, I get it. Like, you hit this at this ability, and you got this and this. And, yeah, that, I think that's what, you know, I, I think that's what 5e is trying to do, and Wizards of the Coast are trying to, like, foster that community, you know. Well, isn't that so interesting? That So 5e, as we all know, was made via democracy, right? They, they had this massive yeah, the test, huge Yeah, all the things that people wanted are the things, generally, that made it into the game. And everything is conducted on polls and research, and they're like, hey, did you like this new custom class we made? And, and they take feedback very seriously. Yeah. And the game we get is one that values uh, sort of a medium-high degree of customizability compared to, let's say, Pathfinder 2, which is like the, the dreamer's <laughs> dream of knobs to Customizability, yeah. Right, like you can you customize your your racial trait that changes as you level up and improves like it's, it's yeah. super cool um but yeah so to david's point i think that as i'm hearing the argument i think that generally people who are playing 5e this is true um i think that in my campaign particularly i don't know if that's true i'd have to pull the players but i like to think that most of our fun is centered around the table hopefully david can you uh, go on that i mean as a player in Will's game I think that there is a lot of fun at the table. Like, whenever we're in the world, it's fun. Like, it's fun. But is it more fun away from the table? Like, are you theory crafting possible classes? Oh, certainly I'm not. I'm not like... theory. It's more of, like, like, if I'm doing stuff downtime outside of the table, it's stuff for, like, that happens in the game, like, later on that, like... Right. I, like... I don't know how to explain that, because it's, like, I'm, I'm more immersed in the world's of like Will's game now than I have been in his other games because I, I want to do stuff in the downtime that like affects the world because there is like significant downtime compared to the other games that we've had. So yeah. I, I think it, everything that I've, a lot of it isn't like theory crafting, like, like, Oh, at level, you know, 10, I'm going to get this cool ability. It's more of like, what can you, I, how can I interact with the things. world? Because it's before it was about my character and now it's about like the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's yeah, a different it's, it's thing. not about the system; it's about like the literal, like the game world. Like, yeah, you interact with. and the story yeah, and all of that that's happening. Oh and I'm more God. engaged yeah, with that not, than I was before. It's not metagame; it's yeah. in the game. I think that I'm metagame less now than I did before. And I think that's oh, a big... I, I would a hundred percent because David, I played with you a lot in Five yeah. E, and yeah, you were you were very much metagame. How do I 
optimized. Maximized and you, it. You, you seem to have changed a lot to like, okay, how do I optimize the world around me? And like, obviously, Will has sent me stuff of like, okay, Dave, David has like, uh, <laughs> done it again. He he's got like a group of slaves that are mining silver for him, and he's like doing this. And you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's 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 the same thing, but instead of metagaming, it's like uh it's intragaming. It's like it's like he's he's doing his metagaming within inside. the world, not within like a five E class. It's not within the system, it. it's within the world, which is yeah. just like <laughs> which I've I, shifted I think it. it's good. Yeah. Which it's fun. <laughs> it's interesting. Because I'm, I'm trying to think, like before it like David so I think the difference for me as a GM of running five E and running like this OSR game is that David interacts with me in the OSR game. Because before, he would just come to the table and he's like, oh yeah, can we, do we have feats? I've got this, this, And this, I'm like, yeah. sure, you get one feat. He's like, great. I'm like a double-wielding crossbow hunter man and I have like four attacks per turn. I can output 120 damage at level two per turn. I roll for advantage every yeah, and second. He's like, yeah, and I've optimized it so I have advantage every time I'm in a shadow. And I'm just like, holy crap. Like, I'm going to have to... Like, every other player cannot compete actually that's a lie because every other player was doing the same thing <laughs> yeah yeah no it, because it makes the dms just scared and it's yeah it's and now yeah. like so for example for the new game david texts me and he's like hey i want to go to that ruin where we killed that dragon i want to hire a bunch of guys with wagons dissect the corpse and take it to the necromancy city and i'm gonna hire yeah. i'm gonna trade them the dragon skeleton so they can reanimate it as a siege weapon and i'm gonna ask for, for a time. ring of wish in return and i'm like <laughs> Okay, let's do that. <laughs> and so, like, but him doing that means that, like, in my, I guess, plan, the world my reaction. changes. Yeah, I'm like, okay, well, we're moving up the timetable of the invasion because the undead city, definitely with an undead dragon, is going to do the siege. And boy, yeah. did they ever win. <laughs> yeah, they kind of wrecked our city. <laughs> Thanks, David. Hope that wish was worth it. <laughs> we got like 40,000 gold out of it. it. You know what? It's oh, a good man. deal. It was a, good, a pretty decent deal. <laughs> So that's that's what, what was the hot take here? Uh, basically, it was five E has a lot of theory crafting and not a lot of in game crafting. Yeah, I, I did, I, so I, I initially disagreed, but um, but now I agree. Okay, who's who's it? hot take is next? I guess that it would be me. It'd be my second one. <laughs> I, I feel like some of these are kind of like quick hits. I think that the rise of internet streaming. I, has made it extremely intimidating to start playing D D at all. Oh, great one! Okay, so oh, true. Do we agree with that? I mean, okay, like okay, here's, seeing Matt okay. Mercer. I love Critical Role. I love Matt Mercer. Um, I love. I, I think I love him because I play a very similar game that he does. Mm -hmm. Very evocative. Very character driven. Everyone does insane accents. Like, it's, it's a very, like, theatrical type of game. It's not a combat-focused, it's not a math-focused game. Um, and I think that has scared away a lot of people because they see Matt Mercer and they go, well, <sighs> can't do that. And they're just like, and they get really despondent and... and there's and and also on the opposite end, there's been kind of like a resurgence of the the people who love you know the math type of game who are like I hate Matt Mercer because he's <laughs> he's he's made the game all about theater and why doesn't he go back to theater class like wow, oh my gosh toxic. we don't care about accents but yeah the the bottom line is like I, I see all that and there's like this backlash of 
oh my gosh, I hate that. Oh, we all have to do accents now and stuff. And and and, and I think Matt would be sad at, at seeing the backlash because it is really about just your table doing what they want to do and just being as interactive as they want to. And yeah, so so the main thing is like it, it scares people because. You see these amazing, you know, someone doing an incredible Scottish accent, and then they, <laughs> first of all, know, they're not that incredible. <laughs> uh, let's see it. Will. Cancel, cancel. <laughs> the critters are coming. <laughs> the critters are crawling over our street. No, um, so no, I I agree. Like seeing those things, seeing a literally paid voice actors to do these things is is not what you can expect from standard D&D games. Um, and so that that is intimidating. I think seeing those crazy things should be exciting, not intimidating. Like, I, see, like that should be something like, I should aspire to do an accent, not, oh my gosh, I can never do a Scottish accent like that, then I'm, I'm just going to just not, uh, I hate D&D. Like, I, I don't get it. I think a lot of people struggle with like D D anxiety. Yeah. From what I've seen. Too. It's where they're they're afraid of like trying something and just not doing it to like the extent of like Matt Mercer. Okay, like, I have to a question doing it that well. And because they're afraid of not like or feeling like they, they're not gonna hit it right on the first try, they just don't do it. <laughs> so and I think so that's a me, lot of the problem that I've seen in the community. so I'm a dungeon master and I'm a super extrovert and I love accents. So this is like kind of a, uh, you know, like I love doing crazy accents, exploring different types of, um, you know, ways of speaking and different characters and like exploring different stuff like that. So like, what do you guys think the fear is? Like, are there are there people playing around, like, like playing at a table where like they're not surrounded by their best friends? Like, <clears throat> I, I can't comprehend the... Like, why are you scared? Oh, uh, so me answering this is going to open kind of a sociological can of worms. I think that the typical person that is drawn to this kind of game, probably in some form or fashion, is a social outcast in some way from the mainstream. I know that there's a a huge and very lovely LGBT community behind uh, D&D, but that also goes to the the history of the game, like the, the outcasts, the nerds at school, the... Um, the less popular people. And I think that although we have seen a resurgence of the game where let's say there's more normal, if I could dare say normal, just say more mainstream people uh, who wouldn't normally be interested in this kind of game, there's a lot of anxiety because of also social media. Like comparison is everything on social media. And it's like, if I can't be as good as this person, I'm not going to try. I think there's also a lot of fear of failure, particularly in like American culture, but probably it's not exclusive to America. Um, of like performing and as far as the best friends thing Jake I think that you've been really fortunate to have the caliber and the quantity of friends that you have had in your life so far and I think a lot of people don't have that I think a lot of people are lucky if they have one friend and so if they're playing D&D at all it's probably with trusted co-workers um, I don't know people from the internet who maybe they don't know very well like maybe family yeah yeah, yeah. family friends step family whatever it is um, they they might be a slightly less known factor and um, and also less tolerant and kind of this kind of game. Oh my 
much. Well, you guys, uh, you guys really soured my next uh, hot take. <laughs> I gotta hear wanna, it. In the light of this, do you want to hear my next hot take? I bet it's about mainstream D and D. No. Okay. If your voice and your character's voice are identical, then you are not playing a role-playing game. Oh, I so disagree with this. So there's a video you should watch by Matt Colville that actually, he did it after we did our episode on role-playing, and it was so good, I thought, I completely missed everything about this point. And he he says that very often people confuse doing a voice with role-playing. And role-playing really is just thinking about what, what my character would do, what I would do if I was this character in the situation, and then acting out of that. And he gave an example of um, some, some character from his campaign who behaved in a way that, I, if I recall, uh, the fans, the people who watched it, said it was suboptimal. And he didn't even do a voice for this character. But he made a decision that was highly based out of this character's brain. And he says that was role-playing. Doing a voice is just acting. So yes, Jake, I disagree. Dude, okay, hold on. I, I would agree if doing a voice was hard. But it's not. It's not hard. Like, literally a decibel lower. Like, or just like 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 higher, lower, a little bit. Like, in your in your voice, if you do like a, a slight... Like, 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 like a, a slight stutter. Um, if you do, like, you know, anything like that. A higher, lower... Like... It's so easy to do a different voice and not even accent, which is also not that hard to do. Even if it's a bad accent, like they go, okay, that character just sounds like a bad British accent. It's <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I really, I get sad when people are just like, yeah, my character's name is uh, Brothmar and uh, yeah. It's Randy, I have a shotgun. As Brothmar, I'm going to attack. Okay. Well, so then it's broth where I'm gonna like. It I, sounds I, like come it, on, Jake. It sounds like you're conflating two things, and that is a just a lack of role playing in general that also comes with a lack of a voice. So what's the so here for me? I don't even care if you go like like if you're a normal person, you're like, hey, I, I'm playing a elf ranger. But if you go, I don't agree with that. No, stop there. Right? You're doing the same exact, like, I'm just, I'm an elven ranger, whatever, but your voice goes one decibel up. You're not even trying, but, like, I mean, you are. Like, that. that is role-playing. And mm. I love that distinguishing between the metagaming of the character, like, the player's voice versus the character's voice. And uh, it's so, like, I would... I would say that I'm being terribly like, oh, I'm just a theater nerd. Like, but it's so easy. Oh, okay. A stutter, talking lower. Like, right, let this me, is cake. Let me get in here. I'll, I'll go. I'll go. This is and my want, hottest take. This and I want David to go. Here's my hot take on your hot take, Jake. And yeah. that is that that doesn't matter to me at all. Huh. At all. And I think that players should be allowed nay fully accepted without doing a voice at all in fact i don't even see why you need to role play no here's the thing that's why i don't think and i'm going to say this right now will your game is not a role-playing game it's a board game false (laughs) no (laughs) because i remember i remember the one time i showed up 
And like I'm always I'm always trying to do crazy accents or whatever, and I just felt so out of place. And it's like, oh, your game is not about this. And like maybe not it's it, it's not not a role playing game, but it's like the <laughs> oh, role. Oh, now you back it up. It, it it's not about the interaction. It's not about the role playing. It's not about the drama. It's about the decisions and the and the combat and the actions and the large scale consequences. Like it's not about the personal interactions. I agree with that. Um, and it is so. Actually, I would uh, sort of modify your point until I can agree with it. That my <laughs> game is much more like a board game than it is like a role playing game. And and I remember um, I made a, a little graph, just a one axis graph. On one side is a board game, and on the other side is just improv. Like, complete yeah. improv on a stage. Theater. And then I, I split up, like, a little ruler. Here's where all of the Dungeons & Dragons editions fall on this line between a board game and improv. And I think I put 5e right in the middle, because it's got elements of both. Um, and then my ideal game is, like, one or two ticks just above board game, which is where I would put, like, first edition. Yeah, and yeah, I stand by that. Like, because I love like a really clean procedure. I love having, um, like, the players know what's going to happen in terms of like if they do this, this happens. It's a cause and effect kind of thing. Um, and yet, because you're right, like at the table, very little, virtually no role play happens. Um, <laughs> but you know, no, I remember when I showed up and I like was doing like this hardcore Scottish accent, and it was just like it was not the right place like like it was fine but it was like no one else like everyone else is like okay i go into the thing and i'm like why are you doing that laddie i mean no go this right here what are you doing there and they're like yeah i'm gonna ignore him because it's like there was because you're because you essentially you were like a caricature of like a cartoon in like just like this gritty game of thrones yeah game of thrones it's like if Goofy just showed up. I would say it was more like a Trix Rabbit. <laughs> True. Ah, oh, that's perfect. Yeah. The Scottish Trix Rabbit. <laughs> but then again, like, you're showing up blind into a game that you've been at for one session. Like, if you had shown no, up for no, multiple for sure. sessions, you probably would have adapted and, like, done something. Right, and you would have found like, a way to do it. And you would have found your own no, niche I, into that. In no, in the, the same way as if, like, if one of you was dropped into my game. Yeah. Like, if you guys were like, oh, I, I'd like to open that door, that I'd be like, what? We like don't have doors like, here. No, no. <laughs> we don't have doors in my world. No, but like eventually it would reach a point where where you would have to like do an accent and like I'd I'd force you into like saying something not in your own voice. Oh no! So I would love to to yeah, be in I your game, and I would yeah. I'd be doing an accent like one thousand percent of the time, which is not even possible, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you do the math. <laughs> um, but as far as your hot take of like, uh, like I understand the the desire behind it is that you want people to try to role play, even just one percent. It's 1%. so easy, and I agree with that. But I don't, I don't think that a lack of an accent equals a lack of role play. That's my counter. Uh, I just, I think it's so easy. Like even if it's like you, you're like, hey guys, like I talk like this, and like your character's like, yeah. I... I talk like this. Like, that's enough where I'm like, okay, that's the character talking, that's the player talking. And, like, I don't know. I feel like that difference is valuable enough that 
the game changes when there is no difference between the character and the player. And I think that's when it shifts into a more board gamey type game, which you guys are clearly excelling with. And we do have some players who role play, but I don't know. We've talked about this at length already. Uh, David, what are your thoughts? Uh, so I can see Jake's point, and I kind of agree with it, that if you have new players and you want them to get into role-playing, an accent is probably the easiest way to do that. Mm-hmm. Because any other way of role-playing or just like having them set in the talking in their normal voice is going to take them out of that role-playing. So I think if you're if you're going if you're striving for a very role play heavy game, an accent, and like kind of enforcing that is an easy way of just starting to set that tone. So yeah, I, in, I like in the, that the, sense, I do agree with you. But in another sense, I don't think that you need it to role play, and mm-hmm. I think that you can have a role play heavy game without doing accents. Mm-hmm. So I'd I'd be interesting to say I I just like to have that like uh, veneer. Like that, that weird yeah. barrier between the player and the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Because I think thinking through this, I'm realizing that what I find immersive in a and d game is not necessarily the same thing for all people. Like for me, um, I guess I'm just just a stickler for details. Like if I walk into a uh, town... Of like Gragnar wouldn't do that. Well, no, I mean like if you walk into a town that has like 30 people and they're, you know, how the markets work and like demographics whatever like i don't buy it the same way like, i've always had a hard time buying into fantasy that's just like oh, really impossible and if it's like oh, oh we, like like we don't farm we get everything from the food crystal in the center of town <laughs> i'm like oh, uh, oh you have a buying based economy like <laughs> story and i think that, our money is shells and bones and i think that the the value of an accent <laughs> My money is flower petals. Okay, David, you can go. Okay, I, th- I think that the value of an accent in Jake's game is worth much more than a value of an accent in Will's game. Ah, the crux of the matter. So I think that yeah. because Jake's game is very character-driven and story-driven, doing an accent brings so much more to the table mm. than in Will's game where it's very world-driven. An accent doesn't really bring a whole lot to to that world but gold does but gold but yeah but like actual like uh, like in it like the actual like things that your character does bring more of weight in in will's world mm-hmm. so i think yeah that you guys are kind of like ah, i'm starting different... to understand yes like i've never thought of this of like just valuing different things in different mm-hmm. types of games and that david you summarized it super well yeah, yeah no i i 100% agree because i remember showing up and and just being like Hello there, lads! Like, I'm pretty to a party! And, you, and everyone looked at me like, look at this guy, he, Gray, he's doing a, what the heck? Like, and I'm like, yeah, so, what's your name, comrade? And there was, like, no reciprocation. I'm like, oh. I remember you got up and left shortly into the game, so that was a sign. <laughs> well, no, I think that was when I died, or... No, you didn't die, you uh, were sent away on a a scouting mission where then in my cannon you later died in yeah. my in my cannon yes. you were tortured uh forever i'm pretty sure you had tetanus or something <laughs> i think you tetanus. chose to have tetanus <laughs> i <laughs> you just want it off um all right so actually i'm curious to hear you weigh in on this one 
It is not the GM's job to mediate conflict at or away from the table. It is not the GM's job. Conflict at or away from the table. Like, when you have players, suddenly GM becomes, like, big daddy GM who has to solve all the problems. You become, like, the the table dad. And I I think that that is wrong. I think that... Oh, my God. I heard, uh... I heard, uh... Matt Colville say, okay, we, we've been quoting too many mainstream, but like that, that is, he said, my job isn't to solve your problems. My job is to solve your solutions. Oh, I love that. I love oh, that. and it's so good. So, okay, say, say your total hot take okay. again. It is not the GM's job to mediate conflict at or away from the table. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't. Okay, are you talking about conflict, like, at all? Like, shouldn't... I, I mean, like, like if a so red if, dragon shows up, like, your job is to mediate the red dragon... No, no so I'm talking with, strictly outside the game. So, okay, between players, not characters? Yes. Oh, okay. Because, like I said, it's, um, for some reason, a person who wants to organize a game of D&D, perhaps open their house, and uh, spend their week prepping also takes on the social responsibility oh my gosh okay that is a good hot take because it, it's not a it's not a like integral you know 5e or like like in the in the game hot take that's like a meta hot take mm-hmm. and I, I i think i agree like the dungeon master i think traditionally takes on the role of like a tribe master of mm-hmm. like okay like yes we you know and and i think it helps like in a weird way of like having a dungeon master. That's also this like kind of elder who can settle disputes, but they should not have the pressure of having to, to do that. Like you should be part of a community. I don't even think, and this is a a, a common tradition of like the dungeon master being the host Mm -hmm. like that. That shouldn't even be uh, always true as well. Like the dungeon master is doing a service. They should be given snacks, in my opinion. Um, they shouldn't always have to be the host, and always they shouldn't have to be the conflict mediator. They shouldn't have to be the guy that kicks the the annoying dude out of the party. Like this should be a communal thing, and yes. the dungeon master has the final say in the game, but he shouldn't always have the final say. In, like, the meta-social context. I agree. Like he's not in charge. You're saying it extremely well, just better than I could say it myself. So I think that is a correctly hot take, because there is this weird, like, DM <sighs> responsibility that a lot of people are like, I'm terrified to be a dungeon master, because if Brian freaks out, then I'm going to have to make him calm down. And it's like, no, that's that's not, not your job. inherently your job. <laughs> yep. I don't, so I think that... This is going to be my hot take. Oh, Off no. of this hot take. Okay. I think... <laughs> Lightning rod hot take. <laughs> I, think, I think if you're having trouble with, like, conflict at the table, like, you need to find different people to play with. Like, you probably need to have higher standards for your friends and who you want to hang out with. Like, <laughs> no, that's I, so, that's okay, my hot take. I, I, bottom I, line, I, I agree, David. That's good. But, yeah. like, there's a lot of people that don't have that privilege. And they have to deal with their True. chaotic friend group. But... Like what? Yeah, it just ditch him. <laughs> I, I don't know. I 
like I've seen like a lot of just like weird drama from people that you probably just don't, you'd probably be better off not hanging out with them. A lot of drama is from hanging around just bad people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, it sounds bad, but I feel like you, a lot of people could do better than the groups that they're in. I agree with that. Um, but I like Jake's saying, I think that some people don't have the option of choosing better friends. Sadly, like and, and, David and over the here, line is, cup runneth over with good friends. <laughs> and it's just doing like the math, a, a wash. Of, maybe, I, maybe I'm privileged. I don't know. I oh, cancel him. No, no, I, I think I feel like Will. Will's hot take. The bottom line is the dungeon master is in charge of the game, but he isn't in charge of the meta social group, and that should be a communal thing. And I would, like, I would, okay, the only thing I would say to that, that's a caveat, is oftentimes the GM is the one who is putting it together, yeah. so they're arbitrarily, like, seen as the leader because they're the ones organizing everything. Yeah. And which, like, kind of makes them, like, the de facto leader and <laughs> who everybody looks to. Here's the privilege, because the, here's the, the that's the person, if, no, I agree. if you're the one, like, taking charge and, like, of making sure and running everything, you're kind of, like, the one that everybody looks to when there is an issue, so. And that's, that seems wrong to me. It, like, like I get, I get what you're saying. Like that makes total sense. Yes, because like you no, but it, it makes. I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying. I'm just saying. No, like, it makes the dungeon master things. role more scary to jump into because yeah. you mm-hmm. think you're like the head of this tribal role, when in reality you're just the head of this game, and you mm-hmm. guys should communally, like, communicate to each other. But no, I, I I've heard horror stories of like, you know. The group is going great. There's a new guy that joins in, and he's a he's terrible. And you know the dungeon master's like, okay, guys, like, should we tell him to go? And everyone's like, yeah, you're the dungeon master. Uh, tell him you to tell him. you you tell him right. And it's like no, and that's why I think people are scared to like fulfill the role of dungeon master is because they they think that that's their job, and it's like no, I I I don't think. Like you should be the master of your domain behind the dungeon master screen and with all the, you know, like like master of the game. You are the dungeon master, but you're not the the friend master. You're not the social master. You're not the, <laughs> like that should be something that is democratically done, and you shouldn't have to fear weird, you know, parasocial stuff from becoming a dungeon master. I'm just glad we got to use the term parasocial in a Vox Arcana episode. <laughs> I was the communications major, so... Uh... <laughs> uh, According to good news. Um, Alright, well, so... Any other hot takes, gentlemen? I've got one more. Oh, bring this home. Okay, okay. Hold your breath. It's, okay, I so... Can imagine. I don't think alignment is inherently bad. I think alignment should be utilized. And I know you guys are not really inundated with 5e that much. I think 5e made a mistake and alignment should have been more ingrained into the stuff in 5e. I think especially in the role of magic items. Um, I think alignment can be very fun. I think the idea of, like, a magic item that you get and, like, you can't utilize until you're, like, lawful good is incredible. Like, imagine holding this trident and it's, like, a plus three trident that does, you know, plus, 
1d10 lightning damage on hit. And you're like, I can't use this until I'm technically lawful good. Like, that will alter the course of your character. You know, you'll, you'll try to do more lawful things. You'll try to do more good things. And it'll make it more interesting. Basically, with magic items, with cleric gods, warlock patrons, and paladin oaths... I think there can be more to be utilized by dungeon masters with the alignment system. Hot take. Okay, here's my hot take. I think that 5e leaves a lot of room in their game design for GMs to make up and do that stuff themselves. And I think that if you see opportunity there, then that's, that's something that's, like, I think the onus is on the GMs at that point. And I think that they don't want it to be an overbearing system that weighs down for people who don't want it. And it's more an optional thing for GMs who really do care about that kind of stuff. Oh, David's bested me. <laughs> Get wrecked. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I agree a hundred percent because like uh, baby dungeon masters would be scared of, of that. But like, I just feel like I do it's, agree. It's so I think it, that it's, I think it's, it's super cool. Yeah. It's so underutilized by the system. And I think with, you know, warlock patrons with clerics, with magic items, like, there can be a more solid way of addressing that, of like, oh, crap, I have to be more chaotic in order to use this warhammer. Like, I I love the idea of that. Or, like, the paladin picks up an item, and he's like, that, that can only be used by people who are good, and he, and he just, like, doesn't fit the criteria because he hasn't done enough good deeds. Yeah, and so... It, and, so it's like, okay, yeah, that's so, interesting. Yeah. And, and one of my, my favorite... Uh, like homebrew additions to to my games is that we do not fulfill the uh, alignment chart of everyone's character sheet until the uh, I think the fifth session and then we will hold a vote and we will make everyone vote on what they think the other people's alignments are which is really fun because you know you, you other people may be like no I was doing that for a lawful reason and they're like no that's evil bro <laughs> and like and, and there's this really fun uh, debate about, you know, uh, what chaos versus order and, and law uh, and uh, good versus evil. And I, I think that's been that's been really fun. And I want to expand that more into, like, magic items and more with, like, you know, patrons asking certain things that they're, they're uh, warlocks or, like, cleric gods demanding stuff or, like, the, the, the order... Uh, the oaths that paladins take, like actually meaning more stuff, like in a in a very physical, like their actions affecting their oath. I don't know. I, I feel like there's there's more stuff to do with alignment that's often just neglected in the standard stuff of five E. Jake, I wanna so. I would be curious to see. You know how you do your like other players like get to choose your alignment. The I'd be boat, curious to yeah. see if it was anonymous. To where, or not anonymous, but you didn't get to know your alignment when it was chosen for you. No, it's not. What do you mean? So, like, when when your character, like, gets their alignment, you don't get to see, like, oh, I'm lawful good. So it's just written down somewhere? Yeah, Jake knows it, but you don't. So you think you're doing good, and you think you're making lawful good. I, 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 I like it more of, like, the democracy gets to show, like, hey, all of your actions, bro you're actually neutral uh good you know like it mm-hmm. it it 
it makes you go like, oh yeah, like all my stuff. Because we've we've had like lawful good paladins and they would be like, okay, I'm lawful good. And we do the vote and everyone's like, no, you're lawful neutral. And he's like, oh my gosh. Like he realizes, oh, like I, yeah, I guess I did torture that cultist and I guess I did murder that kid. And so, yeah, I guess, I guess I am lawful neutral and not, you know, it, it's, it's yeah. a very like soul searching kind of, I don't know. I love the democratic process of like of of doing that with players because it's really fun to like go over their past actions. Well, I think it'd be interesting if like uh, the reveal of it in game would be you know, like you find out from your god, like it's kind of like if it is a paladin, like getting that lawful neutral instead of the lawful good. Like the god confronts them for being you know not good. I don't know. No, for sure. I love that in regards to with like clerics or like warlock patrons yeah. of like you hitting a switch almost of like, okay, now you're considered. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it seems to be a system that I think mostly correctly has been, you know, laid by the wayside for for Dungeons and Dragons. But I think there's still some fun to be had there. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you, Jake. Just finding more ways to bake it into the system, especially magic items. Especially oh, magic items. just like sentient magic items. Like, because well, oh. when you said like, oh, you try to pick up this thing and it like it's not doesn't work for you. Um, having recently watched all seven, actually all eight Harry Potter movies uh, this last Ooh. couple of weeks, um, there is a no spoilers character toward the end of the uh, Hedwig. Uh, Anyway, there's a certain magical artifact that doesn't really work well in the hands of a character because oh, yeah. it's like not really in alignment with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like that of like, oh, the paladin picks up this hammer and it's like, oh, it's a plus one right now. But if you were lawful good, it'd be like plus ten. And he's yeah. like, I must make myself worthy. <laughs> well, then you have yes. that Captain America picking up the freaking hammer moment. No. It goes wild. No, 100%. Especially, like, if it, it leads the characters to, like, try to act different, you know? Mm-hmm. If you have, like, a true neutral, and, like, you, that, that hammer is like, hey, you gotta be more chaotic, brother. And he's like, and, like what do I do? <laughs> so, so chaos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's fun to be had. Any more hot takes, my friends? All right. We will see you next time.